We're continuing our catechism study, and as you have heard me talking a lot about um, God's name and revering and fearing God's name, some of the songs that we have sung, uh, we're, we're on the third commandment, which is on that subject. We're continuing with that. So let's begin by confessing together the questions that we've already done that pertain to the third commandment. Question uh, 53 is where that begins. If you have a catechism with you, if you have the outline that I emailed out, then you will have those printed in the outline. So question 53, which is the third commandment? The third commandment is, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. I pointed out to you several times how this commandment is structured. There's a a prohibition here, the prohibition, something we're not to do. Do not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And there's a warning that that God will not let anyone get away with it who takes his name in vain. In studying the catechism, we have seen that whenever there is a sin forbidden, as there is here, there is also a corresponding duty that is required. For example, if you tell your son, be kind to your sister, that obviously means that he also shouldn't hit her. Um, Not only should he show positive kindness, but he also shouldn't do something in a negative way. So it is that when God tells us not to take his name in vain, that obviously includes the command to the duty to uh, honor his name, to reverence his name, to respect his name. And that's what question 54 is about, question that we covered two weeks ago. What is required in the third commandment? The third commandment requireth the holy and reverent use of God's names, titles, attributes, ordinances, word, and works. In this answer, we see that this commandment speaks to more than just using God's name as a curse word. That's all many people think of when they think of the third commandment. It certainly includes that, but it also includes his entire reputation and all that is associated with God. It includes, as it says in this, it it gives you a definition of what is included in God's name. What is included when we speak of God's name overall? You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. It says his names, titles, attributes, ordinances, word, and works. All of that is ways that God's name, are ways that God's name is revealed to us. So it addresses as well, not only what we say, but also how we act toward God and what we, um, what we do with these things like his ordinances. Do we use them in a reverent way? That's all very much part of what is involved here. Question 55, which we did last week, also shows how we use God's name. Let's confess it together. Question 55, what is forbidden in the third commandment? The third commandment forbiddeth all profaning or abusing of anything whereby God maketh himself known. So you see that it includes anything that would degrade God's name or his reputation. 
Sadly, our tendency is to think that this is not a big deal. Perhaps we think that God can look after his own name, after all, not realizing that part of looking after his own name involves severely punishing those who abuse his name. This week with question 56, we're going to focus on how this commandment shows us that it is a big deal to take God's name in vain. People think, oh, it's not, what, what does it matter? It's just what you, you know, a name. But he will certainly punish us. Question 56 focuses on the warning that is attached to this very commandment. The Lord deals with us in a way that, that any of you who are parents deal with your children when they think that uh, what you have told them is not a big deal. Children, if your mother tells you to be nice to your sister and she doesn't think you're taking her seriously, then she'll add, be nice to your sister or you will be chastened. That's what God does with his third commandment. Let's confess question 56 together. What is the reason annexed to the third commandment? The reason annexed to the third commandment is that however the breakers of this commandment may escape punishment from men, yet the Lord our God will not suffer them to escape his righteous. You can see from the way this is worded that the catechism recognizes something about this commandment. It recognizes that this is a commandment that we might think that we're getting away with. Perhaps of all the commandments, this is one that we think that we are getting away with. God has added this warning to assure us that he notices when we do this, this thing of taking his name in vain. It's something that he does not just overlook. It's a sin that will be dealt with. Either we must be forgiven by the blood of Jesus, or we will be punished for transgressing this sin. It's not something you can just ignore. For our scripture reading, I have chosen Revelation 3, because Revelation 3 has similar warnings to the churches that, are, that it's written to. We have Jesus addressing two churches in the, this chapter that do not respect God's name. And they also think it doesn't matter that they don't respect God's name. They don't reverence him or his word, yet they suppose that everything is quite well with them in his eyes. So let's take a look at this. There are three churches addressed in this chapter. One of them is honoring the Lord, but the first one and the last one, the church of Sardis and the church of Laodicea, are not. So listen as I read this to you and notice how both of these churches think they're doing quite well, but they were not revering God's name and will be punished accordingly. Revelation 3, beginning in verse 1. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. For I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard and hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief and You will not know what hour I will come upon you. You have a few names in Sardis who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life. 
but I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength, have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Indeed, I will make the, those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet, and to know that I have loved you, because you have kept my command to persevere. I also will keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world, to test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, that no one may take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God and the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God. And I will write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans, write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish that you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments, that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed." And anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and dine with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches." May the Lord also add his blessing to the hearing of his holy word. What a rude awakening it must have been for these churches to get these letters directly dictated by the Lord Jesus Christ himself, telling them who thought that they were okay, that they were not okay, that unless they repent, what it says in, our, in the commandment, he will not hold them guiltless. I want to begin by impressing upon you that if God's, if, if God's Spirit is pleased to impress it upon you, what a great evil it is to take God's name in vain. Because again, we are callous about this sin. We take it very lightly. Like Laodicea and Sardis, we can have hearts that are not really with God, but because we're doing church, we can think everything's just fine. The truth is, we are the whole time taking God's name in vain. So we need to see what a great evil it is to take his name in vain. And I think the key to seeing this is found in the way the Lord describes himself in the third commandment. Notice how he describes himself. The Lord your God. He doesn't just say, don't take God's name in vain. But he says, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God. He has that long phrase, the Lord your God in vain. Why does he have that 
that full description. Well, this reminds us what we saw in the preface to the Ten Commandments, that he is the Lord and our God and Redeemer. Now, it doesn't have the Redeemer part, but and, and therefore that we ought to obey him, that he's the Lord and he's also our God. Seeing these two things, that he is Lord and that he is our God, and that there is none other than his name that we take in vain when we take God's name in vain, should make us realize that this is not a trivial sin. Let me show you why this is so. First, it is a great evil to take his name in vain because he is the Lord. Now, as the only one who is Lord or Yahweh in the Hebrew as it is when it, whenever it's written in English, our English Bibles with all capital letters, it refers to the name Yahweh or Jehovah. That name, because that's the name that we take in vain, he, his name, that name is deserving of all honor and glory. The name points to the fact, I hope you remember this, we did this when we did the preface and we've reviewed it several times, that he is alone is the self-existing one. In other words, he's uncreated. Nobody made God. He made everything that was made. Nothing made him. He's not derived from anything else. There's no one like him. He is the eternal being, the self-existing one. He has all authority in heaven and earth. He is the lawgiver. He is the final judge before whom all must appear, angels and men, and all must give account because all are his creatures. When he reveals his glory, even to the holiest of men, They are completely overwhelmed by their sin. We talked about that today a little bit with the Song of Solomon, that when we come into the holy place of the Lord, when we come near to him, we see the darkness that is in us. As well as if we are believers, we see how he has changed us. But these two things go together. So that even men like Isaiah, when they saw the glory of the Lord, they fell down before him as knowing that they were undone before him. He is not one whose face we would come before and show disrespect. So should we show disrespect since we are always before his face? In other words, if we saw a vision of him, we would have sheer reverence for him. And he is present, he is with, and yet we do not regard him as we should. We're not dealing with reality when we don't live with reverence to God's great name as Lord the self-existing one, reminds you that that name means I am because of it speaking of his existence. I am that I am. He simply is. We're created. He simply exists. And because he is the glorious Lord, we're to have the highest respect for his holy name so that he rebuke. And if we don't, he rebukes us for that, for supposing that he is like us. In Revelation 3, he rebukes the Laodiceans for their half-hearted commitment to him. It is completely not appropriate to have a glorious God who is the Lord and to treat him as if his word is not important. But this becomes all the more the case when you consider the second thing. He is not only the Lord, but he is the Lord our God. We're not to take the name of the Lord, our God, in vain. So this hits us another way. See, the first way, it says he's so reverent that we come before him and we have to revere him in this way. He's so high and honorable, this self-existing one. But when you see that this one who is the Lord has also become our God, 
It makes our irreverence so ungrateful, so offensive. In in saying that he is our God, he is not just saying our God is in being our creator, but he's reminding us that he has taken us and made us to be his people. This holy God who is completely separate from sin has come to us in mercy and he has made us his people. In order to do that, he gave his holy, only begotten son, Jesus Christ. He actually gave up his son to die for us. This one who is so holy and reverent and whose name we profane as the Lord has now become our God. He sent him who is fully equal to him, his son, and who himself is Lord, Yahweh, to be born of a woman and to live among us as one who truly became flesh and who is truly obligated to obey as a man. And not only that, but who then, after perfectly obeying as a man, took his place as our head and representative of his people, the people that he came to redeem. In doing so, he took responsibility for all of our sins on the cross. He suffered the punishment of them all. He shed his blood on the cross to save us, to redeem us. His blood is the blood of the new covenant that fully atones for our sins by which we have forgiveness and eternal life. You have this forgiveness when you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. To see what Jesus has done and to take his name lightly is obviously a wicked sin. It is the great sin of the visible church, in fact. In the epistle to the Hebrews, this sin is called counting the blood of the covenant by which you were sanctified an unclean thing, a common or an unclean thing. Here you have Yahweh himself coming and shedding his blood on the cross and you look at it as just a common, ordinary thing. It is not something that you take delight in. It's not something that you, you realize that, that he here paid the very price of hell for us. That price that rescues us from eternal suffering and condemnation. And that makes you to be one of God's own people. It does not compel, compel you to serve God and to, to stand in awe of such mercy that you delight in him, that it's, it's not an empty, vain thing that you just brush off and ignore. It's a, an essential thing. Hebrews 10, 28 and 29 explains to the Jews that, because it's written to the Hebrews, right? It explains to these Hebrews that it is far worse to count the blood of Christ as an unclean thing than it was to despise the rituals that Moses had in the Old Testament that things happen to people, visible punishments, tangible punishments in the earth. It says, Hebrews 10, 28, anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing and insulted the spirit of grace. So this is telling the Jews that if they look at the blood of Jesus, which was shed to sanctify them as a common, ordinary thing, they will be cut off from God as their God. Of course they will. If they reject the gospel, 
if they do not believe in Jesus whom God sent to save them, whom he sent to fulfill the requirements for us uh, of uh, his holy law that we might be forgiven and justified, of course they're going to be damned. And related to this, if you as a Christian, and there are many Christians who do this, count the blood of Jesus that sanctifies you as a common thing, just an ordinary whatever thing, if you do not see for what it is and regard, regard it with life-changing gratitude and faith is absolutely essential for salvation, then you're like the people of Sardis. You're like the people of Laodicea. Outwardly, they were God's people. They were good little Christians doing their little Christian thing. They were at church. They were doing things that, in the community. And they even talk about Jesus to other people, did things for Jesus. But Jesus warns them, if you guys do not repent, then you're going to be blotted out of the book of life. You're going to be removed from the registry of heaven. Like so many in the church today, you see, they were not really regenerate. They were active in church, but they did not regard the blood of the covenant of Jesus Christ as essential to salvation. They were, they were professing Christians, saying we, in name we are Christians, but they were not believing true Christians. Surely anyone who shows such irreverence deserves to be severely punished. But still, people in the church go on as if all is well with them, even though they have no real regard for the blood of Jesus. They go on trusting in their works or in God's general benevolence or the good intentions that they have, that God will accept them on account of their good intentions, and they don't turn to Christ crucified for mercy. They need to know that they will be condemned. In mercy, the Lord tells them in the warning that is attached to the third commandment that they will not be held guiltless who take his name in vain. Let's look at the three reasons that you need to be warned about your sin and its punishment. Look at three reasons that you need to be warned about this. First, you need to be warned because you often don't even recognize that you're taking God's name in vain when you do. There are lots and lots of people who are doing all sorts of things at church in service to God who don't even realize that they have rejected the cross. Of all of God's commandments, I would say that taking his name is probably the one that is least noticed. When someone breaks the first or second commandment, it's often quite visible, though not always, but it's often visible and evident. But the third commandment can be broken when people are outwardly listening to even, and even obeying outwardly God's word but are not really esteeming God for who he really is. We tend to think that the Lord doesn't care about our hearts as long as we're doing the right thing outwardly. We're going to church, we're being nice to people, we're we're not involved in any scandals. We don't think, oh, but God looks on the heart and my heart is not right with God. I am just going through the motions and this will bring his judgment. We need to consider these things. This seems to be exactly the problem with Sardis and Laodicea in Revelation 3. Sardis was blinded because they, thought, they were thought well of by others. And Laodicea was blinded because they thought well of themselves. So Jesus says that Sardis had a name that they were alive. People thought well of them. They had good attendance. Their worship was vibrant. They were in good shape financially. They had people who were active in service. They had a strong outreach. Both the community and the churches in their presbytery thought well of them. They had a name. And of the church of Laodicea, Jesus says that they say of themselves, I am rich and I have become wealthy and have need of nothing. 
So they felt good about themselves. Their church was growing. They had plenty of money. They were really reaching their stride as a church, they felt. Jesus had a very different assessment of these churches, didn't he? Sardis had a name that they were alive, but Jesus says that they are dead and that they will be blotted out of his book, cut off from a place in the registry of his people unless they repent. Many of them were headed toward hell, and people thought they were doing great. And though Laodicea felt good about themselves, Jesus said that they were wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. They were not doing well at all. He counseled them to do what? What were they missing? To come to him for salvation. I grew up in a church like Sardis and Laodicea. They had a beautiful facility that was well-maintained. There were no scandals in the community. There was ministry to the poor. There were a lot of programs. And they did not regard the blood of the covenant by which they were sanctified to be a holy thing. What I mean is they did not believe the gospel. They were a church that was full of good deeds. They did not even realize that they, like everyone else, needed to trust in Jesus who was crucified for salvation. They talked about him, but they did not revere God as a holy God. And they did not revere the cross as anything more than an example of a man dying for a cause. How helpful it is to have this solemn warning then. When you think it doesn't matter if you take his name in vain, and then he comes along and he says to us, but it does matter. You will be cut off. You will be held guilty. You will be condemned. It's meant to warn us so that we will repent and not be condemned. It's a mercy. Millions of nominal Christians have been awakened by God's warnings. They have heard the warnings and they have repented and come to Christ. That's what the warnings are for. So we need to use these warnings when we see nominal Christians. Don't just say, oh, they're a Christian. Oh, they go to church. Oh, you know, we, we need to see our, what do they think of Christ? That's what matters. You know how this works, you know, with a speeding ticket. If you think that you'll very likely get a ticket, you'll pay attention to how fast you're going. Ever since I got a very ex- expensive ticket for, for going down the ramp on the 102 coming into town on Bears Lake, I, did, I ignored the slowdown sign. I thought you could keep going fast until you really got down to the curve down there. But um, I changed my ways. Now I'm the guy that slows right down when I get to that sign. That, um, I, and I didn't, think that, I didn't think it mattered. You see, I took that sign in vain. It's funny because I talked to another guy that got, he got stopped at the same place and they didn't give him a ticket. I don't, I don't know what the difference was. But anyway, uh, but uh, it transformed me. It transformed me going down that road because I realized that this was serious business. And, and so you see that even if you and others think that you're okay, it doesn't make you okay if you're taking God's name in vain. You can have this wonderful situation that everything looks good, but God looks on the heart. And if you don't revere his name such that you truly come to Jesus for salvation, then you will not escape hell. Okay, second reason that we need warnings. Second, you need to be warned that God will not hold you guiltless because those in authority over you will often not address this sin. Sometimes they will not address it because they don't see it as a problem. We live in a society that does not think it's important to revere anything. In fact, we admire people who have freedom that they don't think anything is sacred. 
You know, nothing really is very important or sacred. We tend to think that blasphemy is kind of a cool thing for somebody to do. That even openly speaking against God shows that you're kind of a, a free person. You know, you're not, you're not bound up. You're free to be your own person kind of a thing. And so those in authority in our society will often have very little to say about disrespect for God. This is a big problem with parents today in the church. They do not teach their children to respect adults. They do not teach their children to respect them as parents. The children will be permitted to speak in a disrespectful, whiny voice or to defy their parents. They will mess with things that don't belong to them. They have no respect for property. They don't see anything as, as off limits. Well, I, I want it. That's, all, that's the only rule. I want it. In our society, whenever anyone does see a parent calling his children to respect anything, that parent is seen as being fussy and, and too restrictive, even harming their poor little child. But the truth is, our society has done irreparable harm to our children by teaching them that nothing is sacred. So that you can tell someone about the punishment of sin and, and hell and all of these, and they, they don't care. If nothing is sacred, then nothing is worth living for as well. Life is not sacred. Marriage is not sacred. Property is not sacred. The Sabbath is not sacred. The Lord is not sacred in their estimation. But the point of this, because you live in a culture where nothing is sacred and where, there, where those in authority will not hold you to regard anything as sacred, you have more need of this warning that's attached to the third commandment, that God will not hold the one guiltless who takes his name in vain. That needs to be brought home to you. It needs to be printed in your mind. Even if the authorities in your life don't think it's important to revere God's name, there is another reason that they often do not address this sin, though. The one reason is because they don't think it's important. The second reason, those in authority are often not able to see when you take God's name in vain. They don't see it. Those in authority, you see, often are not able to see it when you take God's name in vain. This is through no fault of their own. Remember what we have seen about this sin. I said it in the last point that it's often a sin of the heart. So you can be a person who is a member in good standing of a faithful church and yet have absolutely no regard for God in your heart because outwardly everything's okay. And the elders rightly received you in the, case, in the church in that case. You can profess to know God and can outwardly walk with him when your heart is far away. Your leaders are right to retain you as a member in good standing because they don't know what's in your heart, nor are they meant to judge your heart. It's not their, it's not their ability or their calling to judge your heart. They just judge your outward profession. That's what they're called to do. The great danger for you in this is that nobody will address you. Because nobody knows. And if nobody addresses it, then you'll be inclined to think that the condition of your heart doesn't matter. That's why the Lord reminds you that you will not get away with this sin. It's to wake you up. The way he surely woke up many people at Sardis and Laodicea when they got this letter. At least I hope that he did. And let me add here that we really need to be diligent in our evangelism because of this. Because I say again, there are people around us that go to church and who think that they're okay, even though they're not trusting in Christ. How earnest we need to be in praying for and speaking to the lost. 
You need to hear this warning. We need to hear it because it is so often, so often we don't see the seriousness of this sin. That's the first reason we need to hear it that we looked at. And the second reason, because those in authority often don't call us out on it. They don't recognize it. And third, you need to be warned. You need to be warned that God will judge you for taking his name in vain because this is a sin that he does not often judge right away. There's a delay in judging it. Ecclesiastes 8.11 warns, because the sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, therefore the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. There's always a temptation to think that you will not be judged at all when you're not judged immediately. You sin and nothing happens. You assume that it's okay. Violations of the third commandment are are violations that God does not often judge right away. Because as we've seen, they're often hidden. And God is more likely in his people to judge the sins that are seen. The sins that God judges right away, either by those that he has appointed in government or by a special act of his providence, are ordinarily the visible ones. The judgment of secret sins is what happens more at the last day. Take the example of Ahab. God had, through Elijah, pronounced judgment on Ahab for his idolatry and wickedness. And we're told that Ahab clothed himself with sackcloth. He mourned and greatly humbled himself. He had done things very openly in defiance of God, and he was called out for it. So he outwardly, visibly repented. And God graciously responded to his humiliation and said to Elijah, See, this is 1 Kings 21, 29. See how Ahab has humbled himself before me. Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the calamity in his days. In the days of his son, I will bring the calamity on his house. But this was only outward humiliation that was brought against Ahab. Because his repentance was only outward. Ahab's heart, we know, was not really in it because in the very next chapter, he is seeking the prophets of other gods. God accepted his outward appearance, but on the final day, he will receive judgment for what he truly was. What a dreadful thing to not be told till the last day when it's too late that your heart was not right. God is under no obligation to tell anyone this. Our hearts ought to be right without him telling us. But in his great mercy, you see, he does warn us, if we will hear, right here in the third commandment. He warns us that we will not be held guiltless if we take his name in vain. We should be glad that he appends this threat to the third commandment. It is a great mercy because it guards you against resting in outward religion when God seeks purity of heart. Be assured he will judge you, even if he does not judge you now. Therefore, repent of your hypocrisy and serve him sincerely. Do not be like those in Matthew 7, 21, who outwardly profess the Lord and perform their service to him. But then at the end, they they perform their service to the end of life But then on the day of judgment, they hear the awful words, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Do not think that you will escape 
if you take his name in vain. But alas, we have all committed this sin. Is there anyone who can say that you have revered the name of God as you should? Can you even say that you have ever been entirely free of taking God's name in vain? If he should mark iniquities, who among you could stand? Not a one. Does this mean then that we're all together without hope? No. Psalm 130 tells us that there is forgiveness with God that he may be feared. When God says that he will not hold you guiltless, that does not mean there is no forgiveness for this sin. Some people think that. Oh, it says if we do this, well, we can't be forgiven. We can never be forgiven. What does it mean? The gospel makes it clear that you can be forgiven for speaking against Christ. There's a beautiful account of such forgiveness at Pentecost. In uh, Acts 2, Peter addresses those who consented to crucifying Jesus. He says in Acts 2.22, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be held by it. Peter shows them clearly that they are at contrary purposes with God. It must have stung them deeply when they realized that they had crucified their own Messiah. The one that they had crucified and rejected was the one that God exalted and raised up. He is the Messiah whom they blasphemed. They counted their Messiah as an unclean thing, a common thing. Yet what does Peter say to these blasphemers when they cry out under conviction of sin? Does he say, oh, you know, don't worry about it. God will overlook it. No, he doesn't say that. No, he says, Acts 2.38, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. This baptism shows us the washing of that sin. He has to wash that sin away for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises to you and to your children and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. The Lord will not hold you guiltless for this sin, you see. That's not holding you guiltless. That's transferring your guilt to your Savior so that He is punished for your sin. It has to be punished because you cannot take God's name in vain and there be no penalty for that. If you confess your sin, He is faithful and just to forgive you your sin and to cleanse you from unrighteousness, but not to say, oh, it doesn't matter. It's rather to say it matters very much. Here's my Son, crucified for you. His forgiveness is not just acting as if it never happened. It occurs by transferring your guilt to his son. That is what happens when the blood of Jesus cleanses you. The sin is taken off of your account and it's on his account. It's just like the transfer of a debt. It's no longer your debt, but somebody else has to pay that debt. The Apostle Paul was forgiven 
even though he persecuted the church and killed believers. He speaks of how God showed mercy to him in his letter to Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man. But I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. So Paul was forgiven. Paul uses his own receiving of mercy to encourage other people that there is forgiveness with God for blasphemy against Christ. 1 Timothy 1.15, he says, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. However, for this reason I obtain mercy that in me first Jesus Christ might show all longsuffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. So Paul is a pattern man of forgiveness for blasphemy. That means that you can be forgiven just as he was forgiven. The Lord will not hold you guiltless for taking his name in vain. He will accept your repentance if you will hold yourself guilty and turn to Christ. He will hold Christ guilty then in your place. He already has, in fact. The only sin that you can't be forgiven for is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And I want to look at that. This sin is described by Jesus. In Luke 12, 10, he declared, And anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. That's what we just saw, isn't it? But to him who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven. The, person that, the persons that Jesus speaks to here have been convinced by the Holy Spirit that Jesus is the Messiah, or that they were convinced that he was the Messiah. Yet they still sought to destroy him. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is the sin of being shown clearly the truth about Christ by the actual working of the Holy Spirit and then seeking to destroy him anyway. That's what some of the Jews did. Many of them, many of them did not know that Jesus was the Christ. And they opposed him all the while thinking that they were even serving God. But there were some who did know and who deliberately plotted against him because they did not want to lose their positions. The Spirit had opened their eyes to the truth and they knew that he was the Messiah but they raged against him with all the more malice. They were excluded from Jesus' prayer on the cross. What did he say in his prayer? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. These ones knew by the Holy Spirit exactly what they were doing. There was no forgiveness for those who did know exactly what they were doing, even knowing it fully, as revealed to them by the Spirit. This is why Paul makes a point of saying that he persecuted Jesus, but I did it ignorantly and in unbelief. Why does he say that? Of course, he knew that he was persecuting the, the Christians. He knew what he, he was persecuting them, but he did not know that Jesus was truly the Son of God and the Messiah. If he had persecuted in knowledge and belief, he would not have found mercy but he persecuted in ignorance, in unbelief. 
the blasphemy against the Spirit is the most serious violation of the third commandment of all. There are not many who commit this sin. And if they do commit this sin, they are so hardened that they don't even want to be restored to God. That's why they actually can't. They can't ever find repentance. Hebrews 6, 4 through 6 says, For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened, okay, I mean, actually convinced by the Holy Spirit and have tasted of the heavenly gift, the the Holy Spirit is a heavenly gift, and have been partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God fed to them by the Spirit, you see, uh, and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. But do not let this keep you from fleeing to God for mercy if you have taken God's name in vain. If those who actually stood by and ordered Christ to be crucified could be forgiven, so can you. It is true that God will not hold you guiltless for taking his name in vain, but I hope you understood what I said before. It is also true that if you come to him and repent, you will be cleansed by Christ and your guilt will be found on his account, already atoned for, rather than on your account. He delights to show mercy to those who come to him. Don't take his gracious call, then, to be forgiven in vain. If you take his call to be forgiven in vain, then there's no hope for you until, unless you repent of that. Please stand and let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we've looked at this sin of taking your name in vain for the last few weeks and we have seen that many times it is a sin that is not seen by others. It is sometimes really not paid any attention to by us either. That's part of the problem. That's why, what actually, what is the problem? We're taking it in vain. It's not a big deal. It's not important. It doesn't matter. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would awaken us if we've done that. We pray, Lord, that we would revere you, that we would revere the things that pertain to you. We pray, Lord, that we would realize that we must have Christ, that we must have forgiveness by his blood, that it is not an empty thing. It's not a vain thing. Not something that doesn't matter. It's not trivial. You are not trivial. Father, we pray that you would help us, Lord, to have a greater reverence for you. For we know, Lord, that, yes, we may indeed be in Christ and may be trusting in you fully for our salvation. Father, we know that this sin is still very much upon us, that we do not revere you as we should. We pray, Lord, that you would help us, that you would make the things of God to be as the things of God and not the things of man, that we would not think that you are altogether like us, but rather that you are altogether different, that you are holy, and that if we saw you, if we saw something of your glory, we would, we would do a face plant. Father, we pray that we would grasp the reality. of We just don't grasp, Lord, and we pray that you would help us to do so, help us to grow, help us to be filled with the with a knowledge and understanding of who you are, Lord. Break into our lives with power, we pray. Show us the truth. Enlighten us, O Lord, so that everything else becomes trivial to us in comparison. 
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. A psalm that very much received now the blessing of the Lord. Peace to the brethren and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Amen.